Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of MA Architects Make It Innovative, featuring deep dive discussions on the world of innovation as it relates to the built environment. I am Mark Bryan, the Director of Innovation and Research for MA Architects, a certified futurist, master trend forecaster, and designer. On this episode, we are going to be talking to two people that have inspired me in my career and my work, and the topic is one that fuels us all at MA Architects, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm Sam Moeller, the Director of Strategic Communications for MA Architects and a guru on all things of human behaviors, well-being, and mental health. As we continually say on our show, we are here to help change the mindset from stigma to strength. Broadly speaking, equity is about safeguarding fairness and impartiality for all people. At MA Architects, whether it's in our designs, our respite rooms, or within our culture, we want to create safety and safe spaces. Exactly. And diversity is so important because when we design space, we are designing for the community that will be occupying that space. It is why we have our co-creation sessions so we can understand what their needs are because we are literally representing them through design. To help speak on this today, it is my honor and privilege to say that we have with us today the incomparable Cheryl Durst. Cheryl is the Executive Vice President and CEO of IIDA, the International Interior Design Association, which is the Commercial Interior Design Association with global reach that supports design professionals, industry affiliates, educators, students, firms, and their clients through their network of 15,000 plus members across 58 countries. As IIDA's EVP and CEO, Cheryl oversees the strategic direction of IIDA and is a sought after expert with insights into design and culture that enables her to engage audiences worldwide and has been referred to as an ambassador for innovation and expansion and a visionary strategist by Interior Design Magazine, no less. Simply put, in our industry and beyond, Cheryl Durst is truly an inspiration to all of us and she's a fellow futurist, might I add. I love all of that. Also, what a cool recommendation letter to casually be able to quote interior design having said such beautiful things. That's awesome. I, if that wasn't enough to get you guys' attention, I am also really excited to share MA's latest and I vote greatest addition, Tamara Fiscaldo, who is our newly named Director of Interior Design here at the firm. Tamara brings three impressive decades of experience in interior design with her, including work on international and national large-scale projects and award-winning designs for healthcare, higher education, retail, and workplace projects. Strategic and innovative, Tamara's energy keeps her driven as a continual learner with a love for technology, process, and standards, allowing for more research and creativity on projects that ultimately leads to designing more successful outcomes for her clients. Her values demonstrated in her ability to assess clients' current standings and responsibly develop new strategies by efficiently interpreting clients' needs and turning programming data into design solutions, which is why she and Cheryl are the perfect guests today to talk about why diversity, equity, and inclusion is important in design, architecture, and beyond. Welcome, Cheryl, and welcome, Tamara, to our show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Same, same. Hopefully you guys are blushing. And if not, we can keep bragging on you because <laughs> you're two of the most incredible female women leaders, all the things. So we're happy to continue to brag on you guys. But now that we have let our listeners know a little bit about you guys professionally, we want to let them in a little bit personally. Cheryl, you want to start off? Sure. That's great. Let's connect you with our listeners with these three questions. It's one of our favorite little ways to get people to know you better. If you had a spontaneous day off, what is the first thing you would do? Take off my watch. <laughs> Disconnect completely from time. Wow. Okay. I can't quite say I would hide my, you know, gadget device, but I would I would lose a watch for the day. Love that. 
If you could put one thing into a time capsule to be opened in 20 years right now, what would that thing be and why? Cash? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because 20 years from now, there might not be paper cash, right? Mm -hmm. And so there'd be cash. This question always throws me because I'm like, oh, photos of my family or a pair of yoga pants. Yeah. A concert oh, ticket. There are cash. so many. Literally, though, I think I'd put in cash because we may not have cash. Do you even think about like some currency that's been outdated? You know, the $2 bills and they have are such a cool thing and it wasn't even that long ago. So I can only imagine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and literally as something to remember as opposed to, you know, 20 years from now, if I want to go to whatever 7-Eleven is 20 years from now, I don't know that that would be the possibility, but more <laughs> as a piece of iconography, like that we used, this um, used to be the, the paper, the tangible thing was something that we held up and valued. What, you know, what are we going to put an eagle on in 20 years? Who knows? Right. Well, interestingly enough, I looked this up the other day. I was watching a show. There's actually, there used to be, I should say, a thousand dollar and then ten thousand dollar bill like what back in the day so wow. can you imagine if you had that today like what that would i would I like mean, to have a lot to of your those. point from an iconographic uh, standpoint that's <laughs> insane yeah that is so cool cheryl last question for you best way to decompress a road trip love that okay. anywhere in particular you headed you know, every weekend, my husband and I just jump in the car. So we've just recently moved to Wisconsin. And so we've been doing these back roads, small town road trips. And you guys on Instagram, I post photos of barns and things that people leave at the end of their driveways or at the end of their roads. Like I, for whatever reason, I've seen a lot of um, old office furniture just being yes. put out and thrown away. But I, I love the vibe of small towns. And so we'll typically try to find a small town and a bookstore in a small town. So, but just being on the road and, and seeing things and seeing people, I, I find that incredibly decompressing. I love that. When you guys are in the car together, do you listen? Do you talk? Do you play games? We talk because we are kind of in our zones during the week in different parts of the house in, in, uh, in our home offices. And so it's kind of just a nice bubble um, to have some really great conversations. Music is always in the background though. That is so awesome. Very, very cool and very unexpected answer. I love that already. All right, Tam, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. If you had a spontaneous day off, what's the first thing you would do? I hate to say it, but I would sleep in. I am up every morning super early, either working out or coming to work or just doing general things to get things done. So that moment in time, being able to sleep in and cuddle in the in the covers and yeah, totally sleep in. Not for very long. I'd still be up by like probably 8.30, but definitely a little bit more than usual. One of my favorite liminal spaces is to be able to just like say I'm in between awake and in between being that, asleep. That's a dream. I love that. If you could put one thing in a time capsule to be opened in 20 years, what would it be? Um, that is a hard one. I, Cheryl's right. You, you start to think about like, okay, the memories and how, what, what would you want to remember 20 years from now? And honestly, um, you know, with all the digital technology and the social media, you have that already kind of, you know, all those memories pop up every once in a while. So you really want something iconic or like physical. Um, honestly, I think it would probably have to be my, um, my grandma's jewelry. I mean, I wouldn't want to part with that. So that's definitely something that I've kind of like, I, you know, take out and look at and 
and you know, have memories of her, um, but I would assume that that would be definitely something from 20 years from now I'd still want to have. So let's safeguard that. I love that. It's yeah. like both of you thought about stories in just such different but rich and meaningful ways. It makes sense. We're all designers because that's what we do. We create stories. I love it. Last question. Best way to decompress. Okay, everybody's gonna think I'm really crazy on this, but I love gardening and I love weeding. So there's some kind of zone that I get into when I'm out there and I'm pulling those weeds and there's a frustration that I'm taking out on those weeds. There's a, like a, and sometimes you just get into this zone where you don't even know what you're doing. Um, and it just starts to just kind of let go of all the stress from your brain. And then what happens is you have this beautiful garden that now is weed free. <laughs> so... Well, if you ever run out of weeds at your house, you're welcome to come over. <laughs> you can't do anybody else's. It has to be my weeds. Sorry. <laughs> Total self-fulfillment there. Dead. I love that. Thank you, ladies, so much for letting us have a little bit of insight on who you are personally to complement that professional expertise. Well, then let's set up our topic a little bit today. We've got, it's a very meaningful topic today. And so I think to tackle this from the right standpoint, it's good for us to have maybe just a little bit of history. You mm -hmm. know, I love looking back to look forward. One thing as I was just doing some research on this is that actually um, the subject of diversity first came around into schools around the 1960s, which was really interesting. You know, if you think about it, because a lot of the things that were happening at that point were the tensions of civil rights. And if you look at what's happening today, it's percolated right back up because of the tensions of civil rights. So it makes sense that this conversation is happening today. The other things that uh, were happening were things like equal opportunity employment, which led to inclusivity, which I think is a really good thing for us to think about from a differentiated standpoint that inclusivity and diversity and equity are all very different things. They all mean great things, but diversity is recognizing the diverse group. Equity is making sure that they all have the same equitable opportunities and inclusivity is making sure that they have the space to be included within those communities. And so I thought that was just something that as I was doing my research, because you know I love a good statistic and mm -hmm. good fact, I also wanted to share something that I read um, from, it's called Timothy Clark's The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. Um, and he actually shows that inclusion safety or species-based acceptance is the first and arguably the most crucial stage for creating community. How fascinating is that? You know, and I think, again, it plays into what we're talking about today as designers, where a lot of the times our clients are coming to us because they want to build community. And so they want to think about how to build community. So if we think about safety and inclusion safety as part of that, that's just giving even more purpose to what we want to talk about today. I love that. I think something, too, we've been talking about at MA as we really work on our diversity and inclusion committee internally and then our, our efforts externally. This was so interesting to me, but they... Uh, in the U.S., there are eight major elements of the term normal. And I think this word is has so much popularity right now. Mark and I are on a personal boycott of the new normal. We will never say it. I think it's the most ridiculous thing. The next evolution is what we've been calling it because we are ever evolving, you would hope. Otherwise, you know. Um, so this idea of normal has always kind of bothered me because even in today's world, what is a normal family? You know, what is, what is normal? So there are eight major elements of normal. If you were wondering, I will tell you what they are. White, male, heterosexual, English-speaking, able-bodied, middle-class, Christian, and citizenship. Those are the classifications of normal. So if you have fewer of these identities, the less normal you are, which is wild. And the fewer of these identity markers one has, 
the less access to systems, institutions, and resources they also have subsequently, and the greater chance their rights as humans are compromised. So through socialization, we're taught directly or passively to accept ideas of normalcy. You know, this is what we have been grown up being told, this is what a normal man looks like, or this is, you know, if you're a white female, but all these other things, you are just a slight deviation of normal, you know, but this is what a normal female looks like or a normal family or a normal whatever. But since the socioeconomic and cultural beliefs are associated with race and gender depend on these socially constructed values and assumptions, we have to use critical reflection and really deconstruct our language and experiences surrounding diverse groups of people. And now I want to go break a dish or something. (laughs) I know. So my assumption is that somebody who looked like or was all of those things created the parameters and definition of normal. Because if somebody who wasn't all of those things created a list of the eight dimensions or 12 dimensions of normalcy, it could look very different. So we need to find out who created that list. (laughs) Where did that come from? I mean, you know, I think it'd be interesting because uh, what is the phrase? Um, the victors get to write the history books, basically. Exactly. That's exactly. And so it, it makes sense that a probably a, a white privileged male was the one who came up with that definition because they were the one to start the conversation. And that's why having these conversations is so important so we can break that and stop talking about these things in those ways. So I think let's maybe let's turn this into a question for Cheryl mm-hmm. um, to kind of get us going. So I think we want to learn just a little bit more about your history, Cheryl. So could you share your story as a minority woman rising to become an internationally respected and celebrated leader in the world of interior design? So when I was six, (laughs) I never declared that I wanted to be what you just said, an internationally recognized CEO of a design organization. Like that was not in in my realm of thought. Um, I wanted to be a curator. Like as a kid, I loved museums. And so I asked my parents, how do I get here? How do I work in a place like this? What, how is this a job? And my father was an educator. Um, my mother uh, was a scientist. She specialized in infectious diseases. Um, uh, she was a research scientist and microbiologist. And so really incredibly well-educated, incredibly smart people. And I remember asking that question about museums. And again, I was about six when I asked this question and both of my parents said to me, oh, black people don't do that. We don't work in museums. And so it was interesting when you were talking about um, uh, as diversity became a part of the conversation, a part of the lexicon in the sixties, I grew up in the sixties. Um, I was in first grade and I remember when Martin Luther King was killed. And so the conversations around um, what we as a people could do, couldn't do, and my parents were very much products of um, their upbringing, like we all are uh, growing up in the South. They went to historically black colleges, um, very proud people, but I also recognized in their lifetime, they recognized limitations. And I don't remember hearing that phrase, you can be anything you wanted to be. Mm. Like so many of of my white counterparts were told, you can be anything. I wasn't told that. Um, I was encouraged to select a safe career, something safe, something recognized, something that people understood, a doctor, a lawyer, um, a dentist, whatever. Um, And so as this, as 
this conversation about working in a museum and my parents told me that I could not do that, but they also tempered that with, but, but choose something else. What do you like to do? And um, that path kind of took me to, because my father was an educator for a while, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Education has always been a huge part of my life. Um, I ended up in uh, going to college and majoring in journalism. I love the craft of words. I love the art and science of words. I also like taking incredibly complicated things and making them easy to understand. So I double majored in economics. I double majored, oh. majored in journalism <laughs> and economics. Yeah, go figure, right? Another plot twist. I didn't <laughs> see that coming. <laughs> but I minored in art history because I still had that that love. But I um, and I thought that I wanted to be um, uh, to work for the Wall Street Journal. And um, as I was kind of coming of age in the 70s and 80s, the conversations around financial wherewithal um, and 401ks. And I thought this would be amazing to kind of take this information and distill it and make it easy for people to read and understand. Um, I don't have a great love of deadlines. And so being a reporter was, was not a perfect match for me. And I ended up coming out of college um, during a recession, like so many of us. And I ended up freelancing as a technical writer um, but then also uh, teaching um, in the Washington, D.C. public schools. Mm -hmm. And the parent, I did that for a number of years, and the parent of one of my students came to me and, and said, I love how you manage your classroom. Um, I love how my daughter has, has a greater appreciation for learning. And it turned out um, that he at the time was a vice president with Noel. And he asked me, have you ever thought about a career in sales? And this was about that time that um, Noel, Ref, Westinghouse, and Shaw Walker were all combining um, under the Noel umbrella. And Noel at that time needed someone to put together a dealer training, dealer education program, right? And so kind of that, that love of education. And so um, I worked in a Noel showroom and helped put together one of the first dealer training programs for, for GSA, for product on GSA schedule. And then that turned into... Um, the Merchandise Mart owned the Washington Design Center, and they hired me um, in marketing and meeting planning and event planning. But my core um, mission was to put together a curriculum uh, for interior designers um, because legislation was coming forward in the district and you needed a continuing education program. And the Mart was hosting that continuing education program. And so I did that for a number of years. I met my husband. He worked for the Merchandise Mart in Washington. Um, he was then moved to Chicago to run and manage Mart trade shows, including Neocon. IIDA at the time was only about two years old and they needed a director of education. And so that was how I came to, uh, came to IIDA. And uh, so started out as a director of education and programming and curriculum. And then my predecessor uh, left the association, left us in a little bit of debt. Um, I was eight months pregnant by then with my second child and the oh board gosh. came to me and asked me to be CEO. And I had to clean up this mess of uh, this financial mess that had, had kind of accumulated, um, but I had to clean up this financial mess. Um, but then fast forward. Um, so that kid that I was pregnant with is actually graduating from RISD um, in a month. And, uh, and I've been with IIDA for uh, 22 years. Wow. Man, talk about self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit, because as you were talking there, all I kept thinking back as to like what you first wanted to do was to be able to curate art in museums. And it sounds like through your career, you've basically curated this history of design through all of these installations, through education, you know, through just being able to educate people by being able to 
remind them of the history of where some of these things came from and the artifacts throughout your, so I, I don't know, there's just something there about like how you've basically built yourself your own curated uh, position to help yeah. have history of design. It's so brilliant. I think Cheryl, it's so cool for you to say that you love to be a storyteller because the story that you have of your own to tell is so cool to me. And listening to you, I almost am envisioning a CSI board, you know, from the TV show with all the red string. And it's like, if this hadn't happened, this wouldn't happen and this wouldn't have happened. And one of my favorite mantras is, if it's for you, it will not pass you. And it's so cool to think that when you were six years old, you knew what you wanted to do. And despite any of these challenges, you somehow still found yourself there just in a different packaging than maybe what you would have anticipated. I need to know though, how, where do you, where do you, source your courage and your bravery because there were a lot of times that life asked you to be something that you had never been before or maybe you weren't sure that you could be so where do you source that from well and it's you know I think some of it is legacy of my parentage legacy of the ancestors you know being the first in that space that moment when you look around and realize there's no one else that looks like me that's kind of a first level um, we all know what it feels like when, to be in a room when there's no one else that thinks like you in that space, right? And so, you know, I don't want to just leave things at the surface and, and say that just because no one else looks like me in a space, it doesn't mean that there, are, there, there might be someone in there who thinks the same way that I do, right? There, there's that approach. Um, and it's, your question is interesting about courage, because sometimes my mother would call moments like that foolhardiness too, that you decide to just plow forward despite the fact that you may not feel comfortable because comfort isn't everything, um, right? And another word for a comfort zone might be a rut. And I, I always feel that I need to be in a place, this goes back to that kind of through line of education. I like the ability to be able to be instructional. And so sometimes being in a space where no one looks like you or thinks like you affords you the opportunity to teach somebody something or learn something yourself. And so I think it's particularly incumbent on um, women and minorities to get comfortable being in spaces where we may not have been seen before or heard before. And it doesn't mean that you sit there and occupy that space that you, which is important sitting there and occupying that space, but then take it to that next level and respond, react and be proactive as well. Um, your opinion is, is valued in those spaces where you've never been seen or heard. So you need to make yourself known and make yourself heard. Oh, I love this so much. And it's reminds me, I mean, you and Tam are both are such strong leaders. I don't like having to always use the qualifier as female. You're just strong leaders. You also happen to be strong female leaders. And I just think it's it's wonderful. And Tamara, you know, having just joined MA, I've been privy to see her confidence when she walks into a room. And we actually just had a meeting last week, all men in construction, which also just so you know, obviously, Cheryl, you know our listeners though, architecture, engineering, and construction, the industry average right now is 10.4%. It actually dropped from 14 after the secession of COVID because so many women had to leave the workplace, which is insane. So we're down to 10% now of female representation. MA has a 50-50 divide of male and female, both managing partners, but then also of senior leaders and above. So Tamara is now one of those senior leaders. And she walked into this room. They're all men in construction planning a golf outing, okay? 
and Tamara walks in. <laughs> and I will tell you, if one person owned that room, it was Tamara. Unapologetic, probably floored people because I don't know if they were underestimating her and she certainly overwhelmed them, but it was so cool to see. And I'm just really curious for you both as females in a male-dominated industry or Cheryl, in your case, in an industry where people didn't think, you know, maybe you had a place. How, what were your biggest struggles on that journey and how did you overcome them? Tamara, we can start with you. Well, I would say that, yes, definitely in the interior design, architecture and construction, there is a probably more of a male dominated um, volume of men to women, like you said, Sam. So coming into, it was funny, actually, when I told my father that I wanted to be an interior designer, he's like, you're never going to be able to do that. Not in a mean way, but he just knew what I was up against. And I'm like, well, I don't really care. I'm going to do it. And my, I grew up in an environment where my, my dad actually built a golf course and I was around men all the time. So I was out on the site. I mean, there was, I was, had a fascination with construction in general. Granted, it was a little bit more landscaping at the time. We also built a house. Um, and so I was constantly around this male stereotype building and constructing. And I'm like, this is so cool. Why can't I do this? And I didn't really understand going into school. I wanted to go into the School of Architecture at Ohio University, um, but they didn't have it. They had just disbanded the department, which I was really torn up about. And they said, well, we have an interior design program. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that. Like, I didn't really see it as something that would be challenging. Um, but I went to the program and I talked to my future professor and she was amazing. Um, she said, you could really burn a path through um, you know, this industry. And I feel like this is something that you can, you can really do. And I, so I looked at that as a challenge. I'm like, okay, well, this is, this is great. This is what I'm going to do. And, and through the course of um, just my career working for large companies like MBBJ and having uh, conversations with um, a lot of male architects and starting to see more females come into the realm of architecture and interior design, you start to feed off of that and understand that you can have that confidence to, um, to challenge yourself and to be part of the game. So going into that, that meeting where we're planning a golf outing, I didn't even think anything about it. Like I had the confidence <laughs> because I knew stuff about golf courses, so I could at least talk about that. But also the fact that I guess at this age, I don't really care anymore. I'm like, I just want to make a difference in the community that I'm in, in the industry that I'm in. And I don't care. And nobody should care if I'm a man or a woman or whatever. So I feel like it's based on our, you know, our integrity and our performance in, in the community that we are in. Um, and hopefully that's, you know, what we're uh, looked at um, or our integrity is based on. I love that. I And I love your point about age. I mean, I think that plays yeah. a, a large role. I, you know, I, for so many people, you get more confident as you get older. And then there's also, you just decide there's a certain amount yeah. of BS that you're just not going to put up with anymore. Right. There's that piece of it. That. What would be your advice for our younger listeners? We have a lot of, of students that listen and tune in. So what would be your advice for someone who's maybe fresh and they, you know, Cheryl, similar to that scenario you were saying before, they walk into a room and they look around and there's like, there's no one that looks like me, whether whatever of those eight deviations of normal they fall under, they're one of at least, you know, what would you say to them, a younger person, to have that moment of confidence to carry them through? Know your own value. Um, be able to articulate, um, you know, walking into a situation like that, you know, what am I bringing into the room that no one else in this room um, could comment on, be a part of, you know, what, am, what is my value? and refuse to be diminished. 
Um, there are so many ways that people can diminish us and recognizing that, right? There's a whole world of microaggressions. Just refuse to be diminished and, and being cognizant of your own worth and value in that space, at that table, in that room where you have historically not been represented. I love that. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. That's right. Well, and I kind of, I want to ask a very just transparent question. You know, we talked about cutting through the BS a little bit. Um, so I know that growing up, I was always raised to approach people with respect, you know, and to make sure that you recognize that the other is, is equal to who you are. But I sometimes feel in today's political climate, it's hard to know the right way to approach somebody or to um, speak about somebody in the right way. And so I would just be curious, you know, Cheryl, do you have any tips when you're walking into a room and you're going to be addressing people who um, might look differently than you? Or, um, you know, there's different terminology out there. You know, we have uh, the black people, we have uh, people of color. Uh, BIPOC. BIPOC, yep. exactly. Like, what would you suggest? Like, how can I be the most respectful person when I'm addressing somebody or speaking about somebody? So I had this happen to me uh, pre-pandemic and I was in a, attending a meeting and I walked in and immediately I could tell that my host had the same kind of, of notion. And so my host, I knew exactly what my host was going to say. Um, but he said, what should I call you? And I, I like using humor to disarm people. And yeah. so I said, you can call me Cheryl. And he immediately, and then he said, oh, I, I, I didn't mean your name. Do you prefer to be called at, you know, and then he reeled off, you know, black, African-American person of color. And I thanked him for asking me that, but I said, you know, make sure you're leading with some sensitivity. You don't ever ask a person what do they want to be called. First of all, I'm a, I am a who, but I appreciate, I appreciate the question. And I think that's the most salient part of this conversation in this moment where things are a little bit volatile and are a little bit chaotic and your intention in asking that question, there's nothing wrong with the intention, but think about how you phrase the question. Um, you know, how do you wanna be referred to? What is your preferred, if I need to refer to you by race, what is your preferred terminology? Um, my kids, uh, my kids are biracial and, you know, kind of grew up with people asking them, what are you, right? And that is, that's such a demeaning question. Um, and people are curious, right? About, uh, about whether it's, you know, genetic makeup or whatever it is. But I think starting with the right question, if you have to ask, starting with the right question and phrasing that question very carefully, it's a sensitive issue. And maybe even prefacing it with, do you mind if I ask you a potentially sensitive question? I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. So how do you prefer to be, you know, how do you prefer to be called aside from your name? If I need to reference you as a gender, as a race, what is your preference? Because we aren't walking around with name tags. Hello, my name is. Hello, I am. In some instances, when my son started at RISD, as a part of their freshman orientation, it was your name um, and your pronouns mm -hmm. and your major and your hometown. Yeah. yeah. But we don't all walk around with those badges these days. No. Well, and it sounds like you, you lead with vulnerability, 
because you're saying, I don't know all the answers. I may not know, do this the right way. Like I'll never forget. Um, so I, back in college, I had a conversation with a, a fellow um, dancer on the dance company and she had something physically going on. And I said, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I just want to understand what, what's happening and how I can best help you because it's basically acknowledging again that I don't have all the answers, but I want to make sure that I recognize you. I see you that uh, we're just all on the same page with what's happening here too. Yeah. And I appreciate that. That's such a great comment. Leading with um, leading with vulnerability is a, is a very large part of being an ally. Um, being an ally starts with that, you know, owning your own vulnerability and then communicating that. Well, I, I kind of think maybe we've answered this question a little bit, but you know, when we talk about conversations, um, I think a lot of people are talking about color, mm -hmm. but like what might be the right way for us to have colorblind conversations? Um, I think that it is, and I think even that phrase, um, right? We all know someone who said, I was raised to not see color. And I call bullshit on that, BS on that. I don't know if I can say bullshit on this podcast. Yes, but you can. I will, <laughs> I will call on that because as human beings, we are hardwired to see differences. Yeah. That is just deep in our DNA, it's deep in our ancient brain. And so immediately when you see someone who does not look like you, you will focus on the differences before you focus on the similarities. And so if my color is different than yours, you will notice my color. And so Melody Hobson did a phenomenal TED talk um, about let's erase colorblind from our vocabulary and instead be color brave. Yeah. And, you know, let's not set that false expectation of color blindness because it just, just doesn't exist unless you're the, you know, red, green colorblind um, <laughs> from a, from an ophthalmolic sense. But, um, <laughs> but let's, let's deal with the realities of we, you know, we are different from one another. Physiologically, we will recognize that. And then let's move on from there. Well, and I also feel like it should be celebrated instead of discounted. There yeah. should be, there's reason to celebrate our differences, regardless of what that is, culture, color, gender. I, I feel like we were starting to um, not be brave and to be shy about uh, calling that out and not necessarily calling it out in a negative sense, but calling it out in a, uh, in a celebratory sense. So we are all different. We all have our own nuances and let's, you know, let's not cover that up. Let's just talk about it and celebrate it and be transparent. Yeah. I love that. You guys are going to have to bear with me, okay? This is going to either hit or not, and we'll cut it out of the podcast. But I do think, you know, Cheryl, this you inspired me. Back, If you think back to paintings from like the 1600s, 1500s, Renaissance paintings, et cetera, and everyone, it, you, it, was, it was really celebrated to be fat, very, very large, right? Because that meant you were very wealthy because you had so much excess of food that you had an excess of pounds, you know? I almost feel like now the more inclusive you are, the richer you are. That that indicates how much more experience and how much more exposure you've had the privilege of having in your life. If you don't jump at the sight of somebody who doesn't look just the same of you as you, or the idea of a transgender woman in office doesn't scare you, it's a sign to me of someone who has had a lot of rich experiences and a lot of brilliant exposure. And all of a sudden, that diversity is almost to be expected, not to be feared. And I think that, I love, Tamara, the idea that you said celebrate. You know, it deserves to be celebrated. And I think that is almost a badge of honor to say diversity is, is something that is so common to me because we're so fortunate to live in a place or have been exposed to people or have experiences that 
make it accessible to me. Yeah. Yeah. Or that it's just, you know, you may have never been in a room with people that are different than you. You know, I talk about those small towns that my husband and I like to road trip through, through, you know, there are still parts of this country where people still live very homogenous lives, whether it's their neighborhood or their church, increasingly as people, um, you know, they may be first generation and going off to college, that might be the first time that they're encountering, you know, all of these differences that, that we are celebrating. That's 18 or 19 entire years that someone possibly lived in a homogenous environment, but then understanding that that, you know, people who are different than you or think differently than you are additive to your environment, they're additive to your life and not taking away anything from it. And I think we have in this country in particular fallen into the zero sum game of because I now, because I now have a diversity program or because my firm or workplace or school is talking about increasing our pool of, of diverse candidates in the workplace, that somehow that's going to take something away from me. And it's, you know, those things don't equate, right? It's not a zero sum game that just because we're expanding our view and access and equity doesn't mean anything less for you. I think the inverse of that is what people aren't seeing, right? They see that racism has affected me, but it's slowly but surely people are realizing that racism affects all of us. So you can be that person on that list of eight dimensions of normalcy and still be adversely affected by systemic racism. You may not see it or feel it as readily as I might, but you are still being affected by it. Well, and so for anybody listening, um, you know, when we talk about futurism and foresight and we talk about trend forecasting, there are different labels. And Cheryl brought up one, you know, that idea of like homophilius, which is basically where you're used to the same thing. And then there's heterophilius, where you're used to the things that are different. And if you really want to think about how you can be a better designer, if you want to think about how you can be a better trend forecaster, or if you just want to be able to think about things a little bit more innovatively, I would encourage you to go find those communities that are more of that heterophilius, which means that there is a bunch of different people mm, in that amalgamation together, because that is where true innovation lies, in my opinion. That is where you will find the people who are coming up with those new ideas, the people who are pushing the boundaries to create newness. So speaking of design, let's talk about interior design. Let's talk about how we can challenge this idea of those eight levels of normalcy. So um, I'll throw this out to both Tamara and to Cheryl. You know, what can we do as designers to help challenge normalcy? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think that um, one is to lead or design with empathy. Uh, empathy is a, something that I truly believe that not a lot of us have, um, that I hope that a lot of us will start to learn based on Cheryl's, you know, understanding of like, we, we all grow up in these small towns and we have um, certain amount of environment that um, that informs our experiences uh, and empathy hopefully will start to come as you get older and start to break out of your smaller town into your larger town and then the experiences that you have. So I feel like in terms of interior design, um, I challenge myself and I would challenge my designers to think outside of their own personal experiences to really start to emotionally understand what other people feel um, what their points of view are um, and how they can imagine themselves in, in other people's places. So that happens naturally in a certain amount of uh, interior design programming and visioning that we constantly do. 
that you know we want to design for those communities, but I feel like there's a, a deeper understanding and empathy that needs to happen to kind of come outside of that normal. Because I think a lot of the things that we do is we always design at the lowest common denominator um, to make sure that everything works for everybody. But I feel like there is a uh, an opportunity now to um, design for individualism and their individual cultures, um, their own experiences, and giving them choice and control that I think we haven't done in a long time. So I feel that that's something that I, hopefully that will challenge that normal. Yeah. And it's, I was, um, you had mentioned in my intro um, that Interior Design Magazine said some really nice things about me. Um, I was inducted into the Interior Design Magazine Hall of Fame. Um, the first black woman um, and now the only black woman in the Interior Design Magazine Hall of Fame. And so I remember in giving my acceptance speech standing in front of, you know, 14, 1500 people. And I used a phrase because I, I admonished, exhorted people to, you know, not have that one black friend, right? Kind of expand your sphere. And I talked about the fact that you can't design for the world if you're not of the world. And, you know, my corollary for that is we talk about design is for everyone. And because it is for everyone, it should be done by everyone. Right. And right, design is storytelling made tangible, right? Spaces tell, physical space tells a story about a brand, um, about a workplace, whatever it is, it tells a story. Everyone who walks into a space should in some way, shape or form know that they belong in that space and also feel some element that of their story being told in that space. And so I go back again to my parents talking about the fact that I couldn't be a curator because they didn't feel themselves reflected in a museum space. They didn't have a comfort level with you know, parents never want their kids to have their hearts broken, right? Yeah. And they didn't want me to choose a career that would break my heart. We shouldn't inhabit spaces that break our hearts. Right. We shouldn't inhabit spaces that don't offer comfort to our very being. And sometimes a recognizable element, whether it signals to um, who you are or to your heritage, um, you know, it just means stepping away from a Eurocentric point of view when we're thinking about space. And so there are a lot of different stories that can be told in the interior environment. And I constantly remind designers that I talk to tell all the stories. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Not just one. I mean, if you think about it from an ADA perspective, we made our buildings ADA accessible many, many years ago. So this needs to have an inclusivity accessibility as well. So that every story yeah. needs to be told. Right. Absolutely agree. Right. And it doesn't mean you have to have a black room. No. And an Asian room. <laughs> and a, right. That feels like we're defeating the purpose. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. We're not, it's not theme park. We're not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But tell all the stories. I would love to talk about on this same topic, the concept of an ally and what that is, because I think a lot of people hear diversity. And to your point, Cheryl, I if I had a $2 bill for every person that told me, well, I have a, bl a black friend, this Black Lives Matter, that doesn't impact me, I have a black friend. It's Okay, it's not a qualifier or a competition, but also that's one thing. And then the other thing is people hear diversity and inclusion and this person who falls under all eight categories of normal says, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I, you know, so what is an ally? Can we explain to our listeners? And then 
also Tamara and Cheryl as leaders, how can you encourage your team or your organization or your friends to be stronger allies, better allies? Yeah, um, I think there is this common um, assumption that allyship is something warm and fuzzy and sympathetic. And sometimes allyship is confrontational. And sometimes allyship doesn't feel good for anybody, but allyship should not be confused with sympathy. Um, and allyship shouldn't be confused because you've got, you know, you've read the anti-racism books, you've marched in a protest, you've attended a couple webinars, that's not allyship either. One should never assume that they're an ally. And, being an ally is, is activist. There is action involved. And it means that you are supportive and you are always learning. You aren't talking over or speaking for, I think we've all been in that meeting, whether as a minority or as a woman, someone has stepped in and been very paternalistic and spoken, you know, kind of spoken for us. So as an ally, you don't speak for the communities that you're supporting um, it means you're taking action. And so is it confronting your employer about hiring practices? Is it asking who's not at the table and who should be at the table? Um, it's you show you're an ally, you don't tell people you're an ally. And so I think it's a it's a series of actions around being a mentor and being a sponsor and it's opening a door and um, and not just opening a door but inviting someone who isn't in the room to be in the room but then letting their voice be heard not your voice assuming the mantle of their voice. Tamara from your perspective as a leader what are ways that you encourage your team especially in today's climate to be more inclusive to create that world of inclusivity within MA and beyond? Uh, I would agree with everything Cheryl um, has said. It definitely takes action. I would encourage, you know, my designers and my, um, my team to learn, to do research, and to more importantly, listen, to not necessarily assume and to understand from all of those perspectives. So I think it's pretty simple. I mean, I hate to, I don't want to simplify it to the extent that it's, you know, makes it not important, but it definitely um, is really simple in the way that we just, you know, want them to listen. Yeah. Um, so that's, those would probably be my biggest ones. I love that. I think listening is so underrated and it makes me think of, um, a lot of people are saying that I've been reading to ditch the golden rule, this idea that treat others how you want to be treated and adopt the platinum rule, treat others how they want to be treated. And that really shifts things, you know, whether it's, I'm a huge fan from my background in communications of the love languages. It, for me, will stand the test of time, but it speaks to relationships, you know, romantically and platonically. You can be doing something thinking I'm the best ally in the world, but that's not what that person is looking to receive. And, yes. you know, and, and that it's on all applications of a relationship. So when you finally give that person what they need to feel supported and feel loved and cared for and thought of, you know, I think it, it definitely just changes everything. Yeah. Yeah. And being an ally also means acknowledging your privilege and, you know, recognizing that your privilege can help leverage on the part of other communities that you're, you're being an ally for that you can use, use your privilege. Um, I think it's a hot button word right now. People get very defensive in this conversation around privilege. Um, it's, it's not a dirty word. 
um, privilege can be used for good and not necessarily for evil. And I think the thing about privilege though, um, is that people who have it don't always recognize they have it. They don't always recognize situations that occurred based on that privilege. And so in being an ally, recognizing that you have privilege and how that privilege can, can be leveraged. Well, I think what's resonating most with me is we've talked about uh, leading with vulnerability. We've talked about having courageous conversations. Uh, we've talked about education. And that, that leads me to a question that I know that I think everybody here has a very big passion for, and that's our future. You know, and what our future really looks like is our youth. And we need to understand, you know, what does, you know, this idea of diversity, equity, inclusion mean for our youth? So Cheryl, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, as we're thinking about wanting to better our industry, having much um, more diversified uh, spaces that recognize all, that see all, that tell everybody's stories, what are ways that we can help students? And maybe it's even thinking about it before higher education, because I think there's some conversations that happen there, like you talked about with your parents and what they thought was acceptable um, for, you know, for, for people of your generation. So what would you share? Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's very longitudinal. I think, you know, right now, a lot of firms are, are wanting actively recruiting black and brown designers. Um, and we're at a moment where, you know, uh, they're low percentage of um, practitioners. We don't have a high percentage of black and brown designers in our profession, but that will shift and that will change. It's, it's a longitudinal thing. So it's happening over time. There are greater numbers of um, minorities and underrepresented communities in design school. So one of the first things we've got to keep them in design school. Um, you know, we've got to support um, we've got to support BIPOC uh, students in design. That's being a mentor to them while they're in design school, but even pulling back and way before design school, um, there are an increasing number of pipeline programs um, that talk about design as a career. Um, we aren't typically a career that first generation folks going into, uh, going into college, first generation folks are not choosing design careers much like with my parents and minority communities, they're encouraging those students to pursue other known traditional careers. And so we need to do a better job of um, talking about the profession of design being viable, being satisfying, um, being, um, being able to support life, um, that, it's, you know, that it's not a drain <laughs> to be in design. I think sometimes we tell a difficult story about design that doesn't make it an attractive career always for everyone. I'm not even talking about underrepresented communities, but for everyone. So we need to do a better job of talking about the design professions as being vi viable, um, satisfying careers. But then also with pipeline programs, we also need to expose design as a career option, not just to students, but to parents and to help yeah. myth bust around what design is or isn't um, to parents as well. Well, I think that's what IADA does very well, you know, with its activation of um, trying to get the legislation out there that actually helps support our design community. Um, you know, and it goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, normalizing conversations and mm -hmm. having, making sure that we are breaking what normal looks like and allowing people the freedom to learn and express themselves. Um, and the, the increasing number of black and brown people in design will be helpful because I am, you know, within the realm of representation. Representation does matter, right? And it was Marian mm -hmm. Wright Edelman who said that, particularly for students of color, you need to see it to be it. And so the more black and brown 
designers and architects and facility managers, you know, everyone in the built environment um, that communities are seeing the better for all of us, um, because that is going to increase the diversity in our profession. Um, so being mindful of with firms, um, being mindful of what your website is looking like. Are you, you know, are you showing black and brown people on your website and in your collateral materials and your marketing materials? The visibility piece is really key. Cheryl, I'm curious and I'm trying to handle this the best way. What is the difference between black and brown when we speak about it? So we're speaking about it properly. Yeah, that's a great question. So when I refer to, um, in using kind of BIPOC as terminology, when I refer to black, I am speaking about black people of African-American heritage or Afro-Caribbean heritage. And when I speak about folks that are brown, I'm prim primarily referring to the Latinx community. Excellent. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah, thank you for asking. Well, I think, unfortunately, as much as I would love to keep this conversation going, we unfortunately have to wind it down. I know. Maybe we'll have a part two in the future. Yes. And three and four. And three and four. <laughs> um, well, so to kind of um, end us on a light note and something that is about the future, because obviously as a futurist, I'm always curious about what people's perceptions are. So Cheryl and Tamara, this question is, is for both of you. Um, so when we think about foresight, we think about signals and drivers. And drivers are the big macro world uh, trends that are forcing change. And signals are like the little moments that are happening. So from both of your perspectives, are there any signals or drivers of change that are happening today that we think will have a positive effect on diversity and equity inclusion in the next five to 10 years? Um, and so Tamara, I'll start with you and then we can, we can finish with Cheryl. Well, I think the most obvious ones is that we are seeing um, actual leadership roles in organizations for DE&I. I mean, I don't know that I ever would have uh, seen, um, uh, you know, uh, advertisements for, or at least uh, even in our local Columbus Business First, like having uh, a front page report of like, you know, our local DNI um, presidential or vice presidential uh, leadership roles. So actually having those as uh, leading organizations are, are taking that into consideration, I think that's huge. Yeah, I think the um, deliberate, and this is so redundant, the deliberate intentionality um, mm -hmm. that uh, firms and organizations and entire professions are paying attention to the, the metrics and the yeah. numbers. Right, and that's one piece of it, um, and in hiring diverse candidates. But then it's that inclusion part that I think where we need to do the work. You know, you're recruiting diverse candidates. Are those candidates then feeling welcome and comfortable in the firm that you're inviting them into? Um, but I think the conversations, just from a since I love words, from a lexicon standpoint, we're starting to hear less and less about spaces for me and. Instead, we're talking about we spaces and Absolutely. us. And um, we're talking about the disciplines within design blurring. And this may sound really micro, but I think that conversation around when we talk about how healthcare informs retail and retail informs workplace, the more things are blurred from a purely discipline sense, that has a direct effect and correlation on, we begin to think about the people that populate that space in very much the same blurred manner. So that becomes us and we, um, not me and them. Um, so the more that we can blur, the better. And like that is, that is so kind of way out there. 
Um, but words drive actions and meaning. And we know that that is particularly resonant within design. And so the more that we can talk about those spaces where we assemble and we learn and we heal, um, it's about all of us. Well, I cannot say enough how I am looking forward to that future where we have that uh, intentionality of blurred lines and inclusivity. I love that. I have one thing too for you guys. I'm throwing Mark off his game because he didn't know this was coming, but I have been called to do this, okay? So now that I know, you're both artists already, we've established this, and Cheryl, now that I know of your love of words, I had just read a poem very recently, very short poem, I promise we're not here for hours, uh, and I'm very curious what it what it brings out of you both, and I would love to end from the human behavior perspective on that reaction. Are you guys open? open? Okay. Uh, sure. Yeah. Let's listen. try it. Because we started off recognizing you both as female leaders. And I know we joked about, you know, I don't want to always have to qualify being a female leader. You know, why not just a leader? So this poem is one of my favorite poets. And his name is Rupi Carr. And he wrote it on International Women's Day. So I thought it was very interesting timing. And the first two lines really threw me so much that it, it really stopped me and has not left me since this idea. Okay. I want to apologize to all the women I have called pretty before I have called them intelligent or brave. And I'm sorry I made it as though something as simple as what you're born with is the most you have to be proud of when your spirit has crushed mountains. From now on, I will say things like you are resilient or you are extraordinary, not because I don't think you're pretty, but because you are so much more than that. Amazing. Wow. That is really wow. good. That's fantastic. I'm curious, as we wrap up this conversation about physical differences, what does that mean to you? Or what did you take from that? Or what would be your parting words to share? So I, I think from in, being a parent, um, when I, I have a daughter and a son, and one of my most, I guess, wishes, best wishes for them was to be successful, um, to uh, go through this world with empathy and have a big heart. And I never thought once about their looks. I never thought about, well, if she, you know, was a blonde and she was in a cheerleader that she would be more successful. I really, from my perspective, I thought, um, I wanted them to be smart. I wanted them to be able to navigate the world in a way that made sense for them. And I, I think that we grew up in a, in a way that that was the immediate thing that someone noticed about me when I was little. It's like, oh, she's so cute. You're going to have to lock her up. Because, you know, as she gets older, she's going to have all the boys coming after her. And I'm like, oh, I don't want that. Like there was just a very general, general sense about who I was at a very young age. And so having my children, I'm, I never wanted them to kind of experience that. And I wanted them to get by and navigate the world, like I said, through their smarts and through their, their ability to be street, street smart. Um, so I, that hits home for me a little bit more than I probably would like to admit. Um, but thank you for that, Sam. Wow, that that was and Tamara. So I have a son and a daughter as well. And I remember when my daughter asked me and she's 25 now, she was five or six when she asked me this question. Hey, mom, is it better to be smart? Or is it better to be pretty? My yeah. son never asked yeah. a question like that. So already at that young age, I remember that struck me that it was already in her head that I have to be one or the other. And so when she asked, you know, is it better to be smart or is it better to be pretty? I answered her, yes. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it, it, you shouldn't have to think about one or the other, but you know, right. the, those qualifiers 
those adjectives that we end up with. Um, someone wrote an article about me once and they sent it to me to proofread and they referred to me as Cheryl Durst, the black CEO. And I asked them to remove that. It's, you know, and it's, it's not that I'm denying part of who I am, but I'm not a CEO because I'm black. Right. Mm -hmm. And the being black part is coincident, but it doesn't define the work that I do as a CEO. It informs a lot of things for me, but I don't see black as an adjective for, for CEO any more than pretty or smart is an applicable adjective for being a woman. It's so brilliant. I think exactly your example, Cheryl, to me is what relates to that poem. It's that, it's that you're a leader. It's that you're an innovator. It's that you're courageous. It's that you're brave. That's why you're CEO, you know? So that is our common denominator, those, those things, not the exterior things that are not along in those eight, you know, categories of normal, but who, who we are as far as a resilient human, as far as a brave human, as far as a courageous human, vulnerable human, like Mark shared earlier, you know, I just, I'm really inspired by this conversation and I hope our listeners are sharing that sentiment. Yeah, it's, but, and that point is interesting and whether this is in or not, I, we don't know it's, but I do remember in that conversation then thinking, is it because I'm a black CEO that I am resilient or I am courageous, or, right? And so how do we tie those things together? Because I, you know, I could argue that my path as a black CEO has been different than some than than someone else who isn't a black CEO. Yeah. You know, are there things that I have learned or um, um, or have kind of amassed in my in my leadership arsenal that have occurred to me because I am a black CEO? So there are no easy answers, I don't mm -hmm. think. Um, and then just the entire human dimension piece. I mean, like you, I'm kind of a junkie about human behavior and all kinds of things make up who we are. Um, mm -hmm. And color is just one of those. Race and ethnicity and uh, gender um, are dimensions of that. But is it our entire self? Yeah, it's, it, again, I'm just gonna go back to something you said earlier about sitting with yourself and just understanding where things are coming from and why they are hitting you at that moment. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where you can truly find a way to be your authentic self and making sure that you are recognizing the thing, the outside sources that are causing you to recognize an other so that we can embrace it rather than see it as something that is attacking us, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I know that we're wrapping up, but I'm, Tamara, when did you know you wanted to be a designer? Did you always know it? No, well, I kind of had a, a sense of it when I always rearranged my bedroom, which is a very, you know, <laughs> I think every, every little girl probably did that, even every little boy. But I think that when my parents actually involved me in the process of building a house, they asked my opinion on things, not from an interior standpoint, just of, you know, this is our house and what do you think about this? Mm. And the process of actually building the house and being a part of, um, the trades and having people come in and I was able to not necessarily learn from them, but see how the, you know, what it, what it all took to build a house, electricity, the HVAC, the flooring, the, you know, the lighting, there was so much to it that I just took for granted when I lived in my previous home. So I wanted to be a part of that. And as soon, and that was probably, I was, I want to say 17. So I had, was just about to graduate high school. And that's when I, I was already accepted into OU 
um, for the School of Business because I was being groomed to take over the family business of running the newspaper that my dad owned. Um, and then when I got into that process through um, building our house and then being in school, I inquired about the architecture program, which was no more. So um, who knows what I would have done if mm. I would have, you know, they still had the architecture program and I would have gone there. But honestly, having the experience of both interior design, I feel like has that final layer, that more intimate approach to the people that are in that built environment. I, mm-hmm. And I wouldn't change a thing. I'm mm-hmm. glad that my career path took me where, where it went. I always like to ask that question and I'm particularly um, been zealous about asking it because we're starting this pipeline program with IIDA with Chicago public schools. And so we're going to have 20 kids um, primarily from Chicago South and West side. And it's going to be a six week course. That's an introduction to design. And there will be an intro to space planning and color theory, but that some, what you said about, being invited in to mm-hmm. help think about design your parents' house. I want these kids to feel that ownership and that yes. agency because right now there will be this group of kids who feel like design has nothing to do with them. Right. And nothing to do with who they are. And what I want to impart through this, um, this After School Matters program is that design is empowering mm-hmm. and it, it gives you this agency over over the built environment over a space that you occupy and for kids to understand that human beings have this incredible power at their fingertips and then when you become a professional interior designer or an architect that's a higher level of that power that brings with it responsibility and obligation I think it's going to be really important for us to not just ignite a creative passion but for them to understand how empowering design is. Oh. And so I always love when designers tell the story of that, that moment. And when I think about that six-year-old me in that art museum, it had nothing to do with the art on the walls. I was inspired by the place. I remember being fascinated in this amazing, immense space. And asked, I asked my parents, how do people know to go from this gallery to that gallery? wayfinding from very early on was something that fascinated me. I didn't know because I didn't have the words for it. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, in this, this group of kids that we have for this first iteration of this class, that if we just ignite a spark in one of those kids to understand that there's a place for them in this profession we call design, we will have done our job. Well, and that's what actually brought me to give you a call because I've um, read the pot or the, uh, the IIDA post on LinkedIn on the design explorer. And Mark and I have been talking about this for a while about how me as a hiring manager, how can we bring more diversity and inclusion into our hiring practices? And honestly, the candidates that I'm receiving whenever we're, you know, posting are your very normal um, interior design candidates. So we don't have a lot to choose from right now in terms of wanting to be able to broaden that that experience. So, you know, I looked into um, possible programs from a high school perspective, getting in there on a grassroots effort, understanding why they're not choosing design. Why are they not looking at interior design or architecture? What are those reasons? Do they feel like it's too much, it's too expensive? It's, you know, going to a school that they won't be able to get a scholarship or it's like you said, parents are um, not, encouraging them to look outside of their box. Mm -hmm. So those are things that we want to do from an MA perspective is try to do some grassroots in our local communities 
at the high school level to see where we can kind of encourage that interior design, that love and passion for design. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, ladies. You are both truly inspiring to me and could not be more pleased that we've got to have you on our show with us today. And just again, thank you for this conversation. And I hope that we get to hear more about it in the days and weeks to come. You know, I think these are the innovations that can help our listeners find inspiration in their own lives and to think about ways that they can create change. So for you who are our listeners, uh, we hope that you learned something today. And if you want to continue the conversation, feel free to find us on our website at ma-architects.com, where we are having discussions like this and a new blog we just wrote on the seven proven ways mental health in the workplace can support your bottom line. If you're a CEO who wants to care about your employees as they're returning to work these days, if you want to continue the conversation with me directly, you can reach me at markb at ma-architects.com. If you like what you heard today, please make sure that you subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to hear what's coming in terms of innovations and trends from three to five years ahead. Once again, I'm one of your hosts for Make It Innovative, Mark Bryan. And I'm Sam Moeller. I hope you can find the change you want to be to allow innovation to thrive in the way you live. Thank you, ladies, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.